Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like expanding capacity for sustainable aviation fuel and biodiesel in Washington state and bringing massive new infrastructure online in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Ross Douthat. I'm Michelle Cottle. I'm David Leonhardt. And this is The Argument. This week, now that the Mueller report is out, what's next? Democrats have a responsibility to do that whole checks and balances thing. Then... Ross and I have it out on climate change. Well, I'm just trying to marginally reduce my unpopularity in the Leonhardt household. And finally, a recommendation. I figured that I should recommend an ultra-violent action movie. Last week, we finally got to see the Mueller report. Mueller report. The Mueller report. The Mueller report. Mueller report. It's Mueller. Or at least a redacted version. It portrays a president who lies constantly, shows little respect for the Constitution, and was happy to work with a hostile foreign power. But the report also didn't tell us much that was new. It found no new conspiracy and punted on the question of whether Trump obstructed justice. So what is Congress supposed to do now? Michelle Goldberg is off this week, and we are fortunate to have Michelle Cottle of the Times Editorial Board here to help us understand it. Welcome back to The Argument, Michelle. Thank you, David. So what do you think should happen now? Okay, at the risk of being really boring, I think what should happen is what appears to be happening. Democrats in Congress have a responsibility to do that whole checks and balances thing. They need to take the information that we've had from Mueller and go forward with investigations. Now, I know that there's a lot of debate over whether or not they should just skip right to impeachment, but that doesn't seem necessary at this point. I mean, they have a blueprint. This is a very tricky situation politically and just in terms of managing expectations. So I see nothing wrong with the step-by-step approach, leaving everything on the table. The possibility of impeachment is still out there. And so what does that look like? What exactly do you think Democrats should investigate now? Well, they've already issued subpoenas to get Don McGahn up there, some of the more prominent witnesses that Mueller talked to. So Bill Barr is going to do his turn up there to talk about why he approached releasing the report the way he did. They are also issuing subpoenas to get various records and you know more information. They want the entire unredacted report. Um, and they have already, Democrats have already turned down the offer of letting a handful of people see a kind of semi-unredacted report because they want to make sure they have the strongest case possible because they're assuming all of this is going to wind up in court. I mean, the White House is dragging its feet at every turn. And so Democrats are trying to make sure that they are very careful and lay the legal groundwork for all of this. So I see all that. I think I even agree with it. But I, I also get the case for impeachment. So let me make it and then have the two of you respond to it. So the case for impeachment looks like this. I think it's pretty clear that Trump has demonstrated he's unfit for office. I mean, if you read the Mueller report, you see that, right? As I said, he lies. He tries to get other people to lie. He shows no respect for the Constitution. Even if it doesn't rise to the level of a crime, to me, it clearly rises to the level of being unfit for office. And so given that on the substance, he deserves to be impeached and removed, that's point one. Point two is we don't actually know how the politics break. I mean, the Republicans impeached Bill Clinton, and people like to say, well, that was bad for the Republicans. 
But I'm not so sure it was bad for the Republicans. I mean, they won the presidency in 2000. They kept the House for years after that. They had the Senate shortly after that. So I think there's this argument that impeaching Trump, that that many people in this country don't follow politics super closely. And the idea that they would impeach him would put a stigma on Trump that would actually damage Trump. And it would call attention to his misdeeds in a way that no series of hearings could do, in a way that a series of hearings would almost be like acquitting him. So what's the problem with Democrats impeaching Trump? I mean, one problem is that we don't have a lot of polling suggesting that the public supports it. Um, now, that's you know not obviously any kind of slam dunk case, but if you're starting out with the political question, right, and saying you know how is this likely to play out for Democrats, the fact that you know one of the last polls I saw in March had 36 percent support for impeachment, and this was a very you know Trump is a very unpopular president who's widely disliked. Those kind of numbers are good for Trump and bad for would-be impeachers and sort of leaning against them carries political risks. But then I think the broader problem and, and this is goes back to arguments that we've had time and again about this whole – the whole process leading up to the Mueller report is that it is the case that in many ways Trump is unfit for office. It is the case that he has done things that a reasonable person could call impeachable. But it's also the case that not the whole Democratic Party, not all of liberalism, but a big portion built up the idea that there was going to be something very clear cut, maybe treasonous or conspiratorial revealed through this process that would change the politics of this, make impeachment very politically plausible. And the fact that that hasn't happened, that the Mueller report is, as I suggested in my column over the weekend, essentially a much more rigorous and deeply sourced version of, say, a book like Fire and Fury, basically a long expose of how bad at being president Donald Trump is. It just means that going from that to impeachment seems like it seems like a weird response to something that hasn't panned out the way a lot of people making the case for Donald Trump's removal expected it to pan out. And I feel like that, too, is likely to end up backfiring on Democrats, especially since we're now into a new presidential election cycle where the ability to remove Donald Trump from office by normal means is not some distant, far-off possibility. So one, if you think politics are ugly and hyperpartisan and uncivil now, impeachment hits and the entire country goes berserk. I mean, it is correct that a lot of people just aren't paying attention to this, but you bring impeachment in and it suddenly just blows everything up. And what you do is you focus everything on the particular offenses that Democrats are looking to prove or you give Trump an option like he's had with the Mueller report to say, well, if they can't prove this, then I must be a great president. And you risk taking the focus away from some of the more substantive outrages that he perpetrates on a daily basis, whether it's, you know, separating migrant children from their families or trashing Obamacare or a lot of the meat and potatoes issues that Democrats had a very good run on in the midterm. And you, with impeachment, would just kind of shuffle all that to the side, harden partisan lines and just make things that much more inflammatory. Now, that said, if the investigations that are going on now turn up something 
that looks a little more clear cut, you leave that on the table. Yep. I mean, maybe another way to put this is we don't know what the politics of impeachment look like. I'm not persuaded that they're clearly terrible for Democrats, but I'm also not persuaded that they're good for Democrats. I think we do know what the politics of Democrats running against Donald Trump as an ineffective president are. And I think they're pretty good. I think that's what you're referring to, Michelle, right? I mean, the Democrats in the midterm elections, they didn't run on Trump as an outrageous figure. They ran on pocketbook issues, and it worked pretty well. And still, one of my favorite op-eds of the Trump era is by Luigi Zingales of the University of Chicago, who pointed out that in other countries like his native Italy— the most successful political strategy against demagogues is not saying, look, they're really terrible. They're really, 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 really terrible. It's treating them more like a normal politician and saying, hey, you know what? They've failed to make your life better. They've failed to do what they said they would do. And that that strategy tends to work because people already know that these demagogues are outrageous and somehow they voted for him anyway. Especially with Trump, whose entire appeal has been that he's a disruptor. He'll say the most outrageous thing. A lot of his appeal is being more politically incorrect or racist or whatever than your average demagogue even. So it just fuels his image and this myth of Trump as this unique disruptive figure when you treat him like a monster as opposed to just kind of a lousy president. There's a sense in which the impeachment process, it just runs into this sort of question of democratic legitimacy, right, where Trump campaigned openly on the kind of qualities that he would be being impeached for, right? It is not at all a surprise that Trump would tell lies flagrantly because he did it while he was running for president. It's not a surprise that he would ask his subordinates to push the envelope of legality and constitutionality. He advertised all of those things. And again, this is where there are ways in which if Trump had run a normal campaign and been a normal politician and then after the fact all of the stuff in the Mueller report had come out, I think he would be much more impeachable than he is in a context where he advertised all of these qualities and the Mueller report just confirms that, yep, he's the guy we thought he was. Michelle, how much do you think the urge toward impeachment among Democrats comes from this sense that our side just doesn't play tough enough, right? That, that we show up at a fight with a knife and they show up with a gun and that Republicans impeached Bill Clinton over basically having an affair and then lying about it. This is so much worse. And yet we're going to fold in the face of it and kind of do nothing. I don't know how much is specifically, you know, relating back to the Clinton impeachment in part because for a lot of the progressive, you know, firebrands, that was so long ago. Good point. On the other hand, I do think that there is concern that Trump play is nasty, he'll do anything, and that Democrats just won't play the same kind of hardball. So you hear this a lot from you know the AOC squad types who are, are looking for uh, pushing impeachment. But again, th- these are different times and this is a different president and the fact that it is much trickier and much more complicated and he's done so many you know more awful things, uh, you just have to kind of take this much more carefully than they're looking for people to do. I mean, I've I've stuck up for the Clinton impeachment effort in the past. um, And I think it's sort of a case study in why the hardball view of politics 
can be so destructive in the long run. Because I think if you look back on the Clinton impeachment, I think it was a political mistake for Republicans to go forward with it the way they did. But it was also a mistake, a bigger mistake for Democrats not to get on board that, you know, if Clinton had actually been forced from office, Al Gore would have probably won in 2000 and the entire history of modern American liberalism would have been different and maybe more positive. And instead, it's, it created this cycle where now one of the reasons that Republicans stick with Trump is they say, look, they have exactly the same view as AOC. They say, look, you know, our side wanted to have these high moral standards in office. The Democrats wouldn't go for it. So turnabout is fair play. We're not going to abandon Trump just like they didn't abandon Clinton. But in fact, Republicans may be making a version of the same mistake, right? There's a totally obvious case that Republicans should want Mike Pence as president and should just impeach Trump for the Stormy Daniels stuff. I think there's as plausible a case for impeaching him there as anywhere in the Mueller report. You know, I don't have a particular problem with doing that. But this iterative cycle in American politics makes it such that nobody on the Republican side is saying, well, maybe we should just get Pence in there. They're saying we can't give AOC and company a victory, just as Democrats said the same thing in the late 90s. Okay, I want to make two criticisms of Robert Mueller and hear what you each think of them. Mueller has generally, with the exception of Trump, generally been very well regarded through this process by people on both sides of it. And so you haven't heard a lot of criticisms of him, but I think a couple of them are fair. And the first is I think he was politically naive. I think he should have insisted that a summary that he and his team wrote, and apparently they did write some summaries, they should have insisted to Bill Barr, the attorney general, that that be what was released initially. And the idea that they let Barr write this summary that was ludicrously favorable to Trump and not particularly loyal to the facts of the report, or at least the full facts of the report, I think was really problematic. And Mueller did have ways of insisting on that. There could have been an implicit threat that one of these summaries would leak. And yet, instead, they essentially turned it over to Barr. So do you think I'm right to criticize Mueller's political naivete, Michelle? I mean, I think it's been surprising how much Barr has acted as the defense attorney in this case. I guess you could say that at this point we should expect the most politicized, most partisan, most non-public interest-minded response from the team. But I guess it's possible that their long-term friendship may have even played into this. I mean, Mueller and Barr have been friends for a long time. I guess he could have assumed that played a role. But I, I do think that at this point, everyone should anticipate the most kind of cynical, self-serving approach from the team in general. So you agree that Mueller got played, but you think maybe it was reasonable that he didn't expect to get played. <laughs> We constantly find ourselves being surprised at what goes on. And I don't know how at this point. I mean, we're like two years in and yet there still seems to be the ability to kind of take us by surprise. Yeah. See, I, I see. I think you can make a case that Mueller had an obligation to speak publicly in some form and that it's strange in the current media environment, you know, forget the legal technicalities. It's strange in the current media environment to have someone deliver a report like this without being out there in some form, a press conference or something else, sort of answering the obvious public questions about it. That being said, I think the liberal freakout over Barr's summary is a little bit foolish. I think it was maybe modestly tilted towards Trump, but I think it was a reasonably accurate summary 
of what Mueller found. And I don't think it created some massive swing in public opinion one way or another. I don't think having like this 10-day period where Trump was claiming exoneration before the report came out had any long-term impact on how the report is being received. I just think it was however this was released, it was always going to have relatively little political impact given that what's in it mostly confirms what everybody already knew. And I think the focus on Barr's supposed corruption of the process is overblown. Okay, my second critique is that I think Mueller wimped out by not making a call on obstruction. Either way, I actually would have been been happier with him making a call either way than what he did. And and it reminds me of that tw- that joke Twitter uh, account. You had one job, and you know the Mueller team they had multiple jobs, but but it's hard to think of a bigger one they had than making a call on whether Trump obstructed justice. And the idea, the key sentence is this twisted negative sentence was, if we had found evidence to exonerate him, we would have said so, but we have not found that evidence. And it seems to me they had a responsibility to say, uh, we do not believe his behavior rose to the level of obstruction of justice, or to say, we believe the evidence suggests his behavior rose to the level of obstruction of justice. We also believe a president cannot be prosecuted. Thus, this is a matter for Congress. And this this kind of ham-handed, extra negative, does not exonerate stuff, I just found weak. But it basically boils down to, we're going to kick this to Congress because that's who's in charge of checks and balances, right? I mean, they weren't. Yes, but you could make a call on the facts and then kick it to Congress. And their refusal to do either, I just thought was weak. I agree with David here. And I think this is a case where, again, it's un the people piling on bar. I think it's always going to be unreasonable to expect an attorney general who was just appointed by a president to be handed this sort of ambiguous statement of maybe he committed obstruction and maybe not and expect that attorney general to decide, well, I guess we'll go ahead and accuse the president of obstruction. The reason you have a special counsel is precisely to remove it from the politics that always attends an attorney general's appointment. Okay, what happens now, Michelle? Does Nancy Pelosi succeed in holding off the Democrats who want to impeach Trump? Well, we don't know what's coming up. I I think there is the ability to foot drag for months and months and months and months and legitimately pursue a lot of different avenues. I mean, she's been pretty straightforward about the kind of hurdle that it would take to clear to get to impeachment. And she is looking at this in terms of why go down this incredibly divisive road that is very politically risky. In her mind, the, the politics are clear. It's a bad idea. Um, They also know that there's no way they'll get it through the Senate. And while I understand the arguments for it doesn't matter what the Senate does, the House should impeach regardless of whether removal is an option. This is not how Pelosi is looking at this whole thing. So it would take something pretty compelling, I think, for her to push that button. Ross, what do you think happens now? I mean, I think that's basically right. I, I think the Democrats have a sort of one sentence problem. Like what is the one sentence case for how Trump obstructed justice and why he deserves to be impeached. And I think, again, having built up the possibility that there was going to be an obvious one-sentence case that Trump you know, conspired in this way or obstructed in that way, the absence of that, the fact that he kept being thwarted by his own subordinates just makes the political case really, really hard and Pelosi is smart and isn't going to push a case that doesn't have a much clearer core to it forward. I guess I'd say maybe the tiebreaker should be that Nancy Pelosi has been an extraordinary effective leader in Congress, the most effective one of the modern era. And she's made it quite clear that she thinks doing it is a bad idea. And maybe she deserves the benefit of the doubt and some deference on this question. Michelle, thank you for joining us. I hope you will come back. Absolutely. 
Now we're going to take a quick break, and Ross and I will be right back to talk about perhaps our single biggest disagreement. Drexel University infuses academics with the power of real experience. Through Drexel's renowned cooperative education program, students are empowered to test drive future careers and discover the perfect profession before graduation. By embracing experiential education, this Philadelphia institution has created a practical yet transformative academic model that inspires intellectual exploration and yields undeniable results. More at drexel.edu. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. And the very first place that you can get the newest episodes of our podcast, it's a full day and a half before they appear anywhere else online, is the New York Times audio app. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories for when you want something, you know, short. That's only at the New York Times audio app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. Let me start this second segment with an admission, which is that it is not always easy to talk about politics with people who don't share your views, even when those people are your friends. For Ross and me, perhaps the hardest subject is climate change. I think climate change represents a unique threat to humanity, and I'm deeply worried about it. I don't understand why everyone else isn't also deeply worried. On most subjects, I understand where Ross is coming from, even when I disagree with him. But climate change is different. When we devoted a segment to it a few months ago, I felt pretty frustrated by the conversation. So with Michelle Goldberg out this week, and with Earth Day having just happened, Ross and I wanted to spend some more time on the subject. This was your idea, Ross, and I appreciate your suggesting it, even if it's a tough conversation. Well, I'm just trying to marginally reduce my unpopularity in the Leonhardt household. Excellent. um, You know, and contribute to planetary healing. But no, I, I thought it would be a good subject to talk about because... I left that conversation feeling that we were not maybe as far apart on the issue as you thought we were. And that sentiment was increased after I read a big, interesting piece that you did for our newspaper's magazine section called The Problem with Putting a Price on the End of the World. So maybe you could just briefly summarize that piece's argument for our listeners, and then we could talk a little bit about it. Yeah, my pleasure. So it was sort of hooked to the Nobel Prize that went to William Nordhaus this past year in economics for basically the most important work on trying to put a price on carbon emissions to to reduce them. And I said that the science behind that work and the economics of that work, I, I find completely persuasive. But I also think that we've seen over the last 20 years that societies have basically not been willing to take the steps that would seem to flow naturally from that work, which is creating a carbon tax or doing something that's like a carbon tax. I mean, cap and trade is basically a like a carbon tax. Voters haven't been willing to accept it. Obama did lots of stuff when the Democrats had Congress. He failed to get through uh, a price on carbon. Basically, the politics of saying to people, we're going to make your energy more expensive seem really bad. And so what I was arguing in that piece is that given how bad those politics are, it's time to consider other approaches to combating climate change. And the two that I highlighted were, one, essentially passing laws that say that utilities and others must start using more clean energy. 
which of course is just a way to hide the price increases. And the other is spending a lot of money, as the Green New Deal would do, to fund clean energy. And I guess I find climate change to be such an urgent problem that I don't want to wait until the politics change. I want to start addressing it now. Yeah. And so let me let me talk about where I, I think there are sort of two ways that we disagree about climate change. And one of them, I think, is the disagreement that makes you particularly frustrated, which is that as I read the projections and the climate models and the IPCC reports, I have a lower assessment of the starkness of the risk and the likelihood of true catastrophe than you do. Can I ask um, you one question about that first one? Yes. Okay. Yes. So obviously we don't want to, audio is not the place to necessarily sort through technical reports, but how do you think about things like glaciers melting? And how do you think about coral reefs that uh, have existed for all of humanity being destroyed? And just looking around in this sense that things that have existed for what is essentially all time are now disappearing on our watch. I mean, I th I'm, not, I'm not for it. But at the same time, I think it's some of that is just a general problem of industrial civilization's coexistence with the natural world where, you know, the, like the whole problem of endangered species is not per se a climate change problem. It's just a general problem of human encroachment on habitats, which is a real environmental problem, but is different from a problem of unless we deal with this, the world is going to end. But I, I think that sort of, I guess that's, that's one way of looking at it, that I too want to preserve endangered species, but that's different from the kind of uninhabitable earth arguments that are made. But I want to get into the second point, right, which is that we also have then a disagreement about feasibility of response. And I think that in this piece, you sort of come around to a view that's closer to the view that I already have, which is that basically the just the domestic politics of attacking climate change are really tough. And they're sufficiently tough that as to make the global politics of tackling climate change in the way that economists think it should be tackled, functionally impossible. This probably then feeds back into my relative blitheness. I have this sort of despair, basically, that a global carbon regulation regime that meaningfully affects global, global warming is possible. And that in turn makes me maybe more likely to say, well, I just hope it all, it, I hope it all turns out okay. But I think there's common ground here, right? Because I think that you, you have sort of a similar pessimism that then pushes you towards basically an idea of, you know, well, we need to just sort of spend money building up alternative energy and funding scientific research and so on. And I, I, sort, of think, I sort of think I'm in a similar place, actually. I think it's far more likely that we're going to have a plausible political response to climate change that's bound up in some major technological advance than it is that we're going to get a global cap-and-trade regime. And so there was a part of the Green New Deal that I thought represented a kind of different common ground for right and left. What if you essentially said, you know, if you essentially sold green energy subsidies and scientific research spending as just as sort of an investment program and sold it on populist grounds as kind of the equivalent of an infrastructure program. So I think there's some interesting common ground there that's more plausible than cap and trade has ever been. Well, and I think there's a theme here, right? And it extends to healthcare and some other areas as well, which is 
I see no evidence that the Republican Party is interested in compromising on on basically any major area that is important. I would argue to the country, but it, it certainly is important to progressives. No, they, the Republican Party has no interest in extending health insurance to people, no interest in fighting inequality, no interest in fighting climate change. And so what Democrats have spent a long time doing is looking for these policies that appeal to experts on the right and experts on the left, journalists on the left and journalists on the right, and then thinking, oh, now we're going to sell the voters on these policies. But that doesn't work when you have a radicalized Republican Party that we have. You basically need to find policies that people support. And people just don't want a a carbon tax that advertises right up front your energy bills are going to rise. They're much more willing to accept something that hides the energy increases. And they're much more willing to accept something like you said, which is spending a whole bunch of money in pursuit of clean energy uh, that can be even more affordable than dirty energy. And so, I mean, I guess what I would urge you, uh, one is please keep reading the science because I I think you will eventually be persuaded about how worrisome this is. But the second thing is don't despair because I do think we don't know what this is going to be like. And there, there is a very good chance that if we take some action, it will lead to a very different outcome than if we take none and just somehow hope that all the scientists were wrong. Right. I, and to be clear, I'm not hoping that all the scientists are wrong. I think that the scientists themselves are in this very uncertain place about how best to cast what their results show. They themselves pinball back and forth between sort of technocratic solutions saying, don't worry, we can just do a cap and trade program and all of this will work. And the kind of apocalyptic rhetoric that has sort of dominated the last year or so of debate. I, I don't think either of those are actually politically effective. And I'm not sure what is politically effective, but it might be saying, you know, basically going to red states and saying, we're going to give you money for not just research, but mitigation, going to Florida and saying, you know, we're going to give you money to spend on trying to save Miami and these kind of things. But what is the international implication of your argument, right? I mean, your argument is that you know, okay, you pass these clean energy mandates domestically. But how how do you go from that to meaningfully affecting East Asian and African and South Asian behavior on this? That's This is where the sort of the like existing climate action agenda just always seems to me to break down and become unrealistic. I think that's more of a red herring. I mean, look, China isn't where I would like it to be on climate change, but it's moved a lot. Whereas we've basically moved backwards going from Obama to Trump. China has actually been doing a fair amount on the climate stuff. I mean, there really is no party in the world that approaches climate change the way Republicans do. You can argue conservatives in Australia do, but I guess I think that if the U.S. takes action it one will help the US to catch up to some other countries and two will 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 probably inspire other countries to do more but in a time when we're so important and we're behind the others the idea of saying we're at risk of getting out in front of them i, I don't know it's just not but, a risk i spend a lot of time we, worrying about are we behind the others i mean I, in terms of in terms of support for the paris accords and having a conservative party that cares about climate change yes we are but in terms of actual emissions numbers, in terms of actual emissions reductions, the U.S. reductions over the last 10 years are comparable to Europe. China has done a lot of stuff on air pollution, I agree, because of quality of life issues. But in spite of all their pledges, their you know CO2 numbers are not anywhere close to where they need to be. And then as you, as you yourself say, 
the American Republican Party is distinctive in its rhetoric, but in terms of practical politics, even in France, especially in Australia, all over the world, you have the sentiments that underpin Republican opposition bubbling up and manifesting themselves and making these cap-and-trade regimes and carbon taxes unworkable. One of the reasons the U.S. has been relatively better on emissions than you would think based on the Republican Party is these strategies that I talk about in the piece, which is there are major states, California obviously being the most important one, that have essentially put in place these laws that say you must start using more clean energy for its utilities. And so it's interesting to me, you've said you could sign up for more funding for clean energy, and you've said you could sign up for mitigation, where we say climate change is going to happen, let's put Miami on stilts or something. But what about this middle ground? What about this idea where the government essentially mandates the use of clean energy, but rather than advertising the costs, which is what a carbon tax would do, it sort of tries to hide them, which is what clean energy mandates do. Are you, are you game for that? I mean, I think the major skepticism that I have about it is what we think of as sort of the biofuels danger, right, where you end up propping up forms of clean energy that are not, in fact, effective and have their own environmental costs and so on. But, you know, from what I've read of sort of progress with wind and solar, that seems to be less of a danger than it was with biofuels. So I'm at least open to the idea. But I also think that from my read of the evidence, the biggest reason our emissions have gone down is this larger shift to natural gas that's connected to fracking, which is a technological breakthrough and one that government funding played a role in. Let me see if I can sum up what might be something like our areas of agreement. So even if we disagree about what the science shows, I assume you would agree that the tail risks are big enough and are different from, say, health care or tax policy or a bunch of other issues, that the idea of taking out some insurance and doing some action on climate makes sense. Is that fair? Yes. Okay. And you also are up for the idea of spending a whole bunch of federal money to support research so that we can repeat some of the successes we've had, like the funding of fracking, which doesn't admit as much carbon as, as other forms of energy does, uh, or this long history in which the federal government has basically created the biotechnology industry and the internet and all that stuff. You, you're game for a larger federal role. With, without, without buying the slightly overstated version of the federal government's role that you offered, yes. And I think Part of this is a general shift in my view over the last five years where I'm less worried about deficits than I was five years ago. So and, am I. And so that creates more space for not the full Green New Deal but some of the things that, that are in the Green New Deal, spending some money there. And then some collection of other things, whether it's mitigation, whether it's clean energy mandates. I would say nuclear should certainly be on the list of things we do, but some list of other things that would, would essentially help reduce carbon emissions and promote clean energy. It seems like you're okay with some number of those things. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that maybe where we disagree is... I think the likelihood that we end all this with just heavy mitigation is very, very high. And so I'm more likely to favor spending on mitigation, you know, relative to other priorities than I am on other areas. How do you think we could do a better job persuading conservatives to take some action on climate change? What should we do less of and what should we do more of? I mean, it's a hard question because among the smart elite-ish conservatives that I know best, 
the thing that you're questioning in your article is still the thing that people support, right? If you get a bunch of smart think tank conservatives in the room, and you will be able to talk a bunch of them into some kind of carbon taxation or cap and trade. And so in, in our world of dialogue, in the world that this podcast is trying to be engaged in, that stuff is still the stuff that smart conservatives can be talked into. But in the world of real politics, framing some of this as, you know, shoveling money to, to the states for different projects and programs is a lot more plausible. The difficulty is it's not, that's not the kind of argument that wonky technocratic people like, like to make, but it might be the correct argument, again, as long as interest rates and the deficit situation make profligacy seem plausible. Yeah. Well, and there we do have agreement, which is I think people worried about climate change should spend less time trying to win over wonky conservatives and more time trying to win over a mass of voters. I think the odds of success are much greater. And I think the last 20 years have proven that pretty clearly. Well, let's leave it there. Ross, thanks again for suggesting we return to this. Thanks for the conversation. And I'm sure we'll have an opportunity to return to it again. Alas, yes. Now it's time for our weekly recommendation, something designed to take your mind off of politics and off of the end of the world. Ross, Michelle is not with us this week. It's just you and me, and it is your turn. So what do you have for me and our listeners? Well, since we're just a couple of dudes hanging out, I figured that I should recommend an ultra-violent action movie. Uh-oh. Right? Just lean in. Um, no, this is not a full-throated recommendation because these movies are emphatically not for everyone. But there's this... Really interesting and weird director named S. Craig Zoller, who just brought out a movie with the incredibly appealing title Dragged Across Concrete that got a certain amount of publicity because it stars Mel Gibson as a racist cop, which is the kind of casting that, you know, is designed to attract <laughs> yes. publicity. But the movie itself is this really kind of unique film in a movie landscape that's dominated by movies like Avengers Endgame, which is coming out this week, sort of huge blockbusters and a landscape where if you get a sort of quirky film noir action movie, it's likely to be tight and short. And these movies, this movie is not. It's like two hours and 40 minutes long. It's sprawling. It's digressive. It has a whole scene where a character played by Vince Vaughn just sits next to Mel Gibson's character on a stakeout eating a sandwich and slowly driving Gibson's character insane. It's politically incorrect in certain ways but is not some sort of defense of like the old white dude characters that it has. It has a sort of third black protagonist who gets involved in this heist that goes terribly wrong. Um, it's the third movie this guy Zoller has made, and his last movie was had another wonderful title. It was called Brawl in Cell Block 99, and it was also an incredibly long, bloody action movie starring Vince Vaughn. Um, these are movies that if they had come out in 1974, would have gotten a lot of critical attention and played in a lot of movie theaters and made a bunch of money and been controversial and interesting. And the, in the current movie landscape, it's kind of weird that they're even getting made at all, but they are out there and they're interesting. And if you're interested in bloody action movies, I recommend them. Are you? I am. I'm open to bloody action movies. I, I even really quite like some. My problem with them is usually that I feel like they're just all about the action and the plot is either barely existent or bad. And you're saying the plot in this one is, is actually interesting? These are not like that. Yeah, these, these are the kind of movies that will – there'll be like a bank heist 
and the movie will pause for 15 minutes to introduce a character of one of the employees in the bank and give you her backstory so that when she gets thrust into mortal danger, even though she's only in the movie for 20 minutes, you will actually care about it. Okay, Ross, what's the movie again? Uh, The movie is, again, an incredibly appealing title, Dragged Across Concrete. Thank you, Ross. That is our show for this week. Thanks to all of you for listening. If you have thoughts or questions or ideas, leave us a voicemail at 347-915-4324. You can also email us at argument at nytimes.com. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts. It makes a difference. This week's show is produced by Alex Laughlin and Winton Wong for Transmitter Media and edited by Lacey Roberts. Our executive producer is Greta Cohn. We had help from Tyson Evans, Phoebe Lett, Ian Prasad Philbrick, and Francis Ying. Our theme was composed by Allison Layton Brown. We will see you back here next week. And somebody caffeinate Ross. Sorry, I'm sorry. I just agree with everything you said. So. <laughs>